I wonder if we really marvel at the cost. Every time I read this chorus, every time I sing this chorus, my mind fixes on Jesus forsaken. And my mind goes to those awful words cried on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Do you realize that in eternity past, eternity future, there was never a time when Jesus Christ was separated from his Father like he was on the cross? When God, his Father, made him to be sin for us and poured out all of his wrath all of his judgment, all of his condemnation against sin in your place and my place. It was the one time in all of eternity when the Son of God was forsaken by his Father out of love for you and me. We ought to cling to Christ, and we should marvel at the cost. Jesus forsaken, God estranged from God. We have been bought by such love, and as a result, our life is not our own. We've been redeemed. Redeemed from all iniquity because of that awful moment on the cross. I don't know if you remember, but I challenged Pastor Pruitt to preach on the theology of this song, which he did. And he did so in a wonderful, wonderful way. I mean, spend some time this afternoon and meditate on the words of this particular hymn. And then marvel at the cost. The cost of our salvation through Christ what the Son of God went through for us. If you wouldn't mind, take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5. As we continue in our study on the Sermon on the Mount, <clears throat> Jesus is preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and he got to a part after the Jewish people were wondering, what is your relationship to the law, Jesus explains that in verses 17, 18, and 19. And he explains what his relationship was to the law. He came to fulfill the law, not set it aside, not add to it, not change it. He came to fulfill it. And then he makes this statement in verse 20, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now remember, the Jewish people were looking for a physical kingdom. We understand through Revelation that, that there's a spiritual aspect of the kingdom of God which has now come in the person of Jesus Christ. 
And he's saying there's only one way you're going to get into that kingdom, and that is if your righteousness far exceed, far surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, we read the Bible and we look at the scribes and the Pharisees as being rascals, snakes, but there was no group of people more revered, more, no group of religious people more revered among the common Jewish people as the scribes and the Pharisees. When one of them was walking down the streets, you can almost hear people say, there goes a righteous man. And yet Jesus says, if you have any hope of entering into the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness has to be far surpassing of the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then he begins to show us how that's to be so. Verse 21, he says, You have heard that it was said by them of old, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. I think this is the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments. But then Jesus says, But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause, unjustified anger, shall be in danger of judgment. So in other words, if we harbor unjustified anger in our hearts, we have broken the sixth commandment. Now let me remind you that if we break the law in one point, we are what? We're guilty of the whole thing. And then he goes on and he says, And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So we can kill somebody with unjustified anger, which then flows out of our mouths in calling people names, and we can kill somebody with what we would call today character assassination. And we would be in danger of hellfire. And I preached on those two verses, and boy, it really shakes us to our core, doesn't it? Because it shows us that the law that God gave through Moses is something that was not merely external. It had to do with issues of the what? The heart. There was always an internal spiritual aspect of the law that was there, but was misunderstood. And sometimes even nullified by the scribes and the Pharisees. Now I want to move on to verses 23 and 24 of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus goes on and he says, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath anything against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way, first be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. And what we're going to see in these two verses is the priority that Jesus Christ places upon reconciliation. And so what we're going to see here is an application of verses 21 and 22. An application, or may I put it this way, the cure for unjustified anger, which would lead to then out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, the anger spewing forth in calling people names. So I would say that verses 23 through 26 
we'll look at 23 and 24 today, is the cure for unjustified anger. It's the application of what Jesus just taught in verses 21 and 22. Now, we're talking about anger that arises in personal relationships. And what Jesus is going to teach us is that this will have an effect on our, on our relationship with God, especially our worship. And so the priority of reconciliation is given. And in a phrase, it is this, reconcile with your brother before you attempt to worship. Reconcile with your brother before you attempt to worship. Notice the word therefore in verse 23. Long time ago, someone taught me when you see the word therefore, you need to look and see why it is therefore, what it's there for. In other words, it's a continuation of verses 21 and 22. It's actually an application of Jesus' authoritative teaching, and he's going to give two examples, two situations, to show what needs to be taking place before we get to verses 21 and 22. The unjustified anger to the point of spewing forth words, gossip, name-calling that would cause us to be in danger of hellfire. The internal anger, hatred, our sin, of course, as well as what Jesus is about to say here in verses 23 and 24. And let me just say it this way, that if we go and continue to worship or attempt to worship God with unresolved issues and relationships with those around us, that is sin. Now, I'll get into some Old Testament verses as well, but Jesus is showing us a priority here that needs to take place. You see, the Jewish people thought that God only cared about the external They thought that sin was only external. And now we're seeing what Jesus is saying, that this anger and this hatred that severs relationships, that's sin. That breaks the sixth commandment. Sins that could not be seen were considered by the people of Jesus' day not true sins at all. They placed a lot of emphasis on externals. And if you didn't externally actually physically murder someone, as Jesus is dealing with in this section, you didn't break that commandment. Jesus is saying, no. It starts in the heart. The heart is to be right with our fellow man. And so the impact of the sixth commandment is positive in nature. Not only should we not kill or be angry with another, or call them names, flowing from that anger, but we should seek, this is the positive aspect of it, we should seek to be reconciled. We should take whatever steps are necessary to be right with other people. In other words, to remove the cause, or those things that have severed 
the relationship or caused us to be angry with somebody else. What Jesus is teaching in verses 23 and 24 is this. Unresolved conflict is to be settled. It's a priority. Let me repeat that. Unresolved conflict is to be settled. It's a priority. Notice the thou there. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar. Jesus moves from the plural in verses 21 and 22 to the singular in verses 23 and 24. That's pretty significant, wouldn't you say? The focus is now being sharpened to an individual, personal application to us. Jesus moves from the plural to the singular, from the general to the specific. Thou. Each individual is addressed in this way. Each individual among us is addressed with this passage of Scripture today. This is something that everyone here, from the man standing here behind the pulpit, I can, Donna, you're the last one that I can see, so I'm going to point to you. And everybody in between, it's a thou, it's a personal application. Now, you know what? People, they don't like it when the pastor gets personal, do they? Do we? We don't like that. Keep it general. Keep it plural. Talk in a general way about sin. But Jesus is getting personal here. And he makes a personal application to the people of his day. And because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the transmission of the word of God to us today, the preservation of it to us today, he's making that application to us as well. He's saying this. We have a responsibility to get things right with those around us. People don't like that kind of preaching today. I can imagine that the people in Jesus' day didn't like it as well. When you start to get personal and specific, we're we're actually living in the days when people will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Tell me what I want to hear. Make me feel good about myself. Preach in a general way. Preach against other people's sins, other countries' sins. But don't get personal. Jesus is getting personal this morning with this passage of Scripture. And the first thing he says here in verse 23, here you are, you're bringing your gift to the altar, and all of a sudden you remember. Here you are sitting in church, singing hymns, worshiping God, and you remember. Ouch. Holy Spirit has a way of making us remember, doesn't he? When you remember, when you recognize that there's a problem in a relationship, you need to do something about it. We need to recognize and we need to admit the anger. We need to remember. We need to admit that we're angry. We need to admit that we have caused 
we have done something that has caused and severed a relationship with somebody that we know. Don't cover it up. Don't ignore it. Because it's not going to go away. It will not leave. It will not take care of itself on its own. We have to do something about it. He says, if you remember that thy brother is angry with you, probably because you've offended him in some way, the brother has ought against you, he's holding a grudge against you, it's time to do something about it. Now, as we look at this, it's not very easy to tell from the way that it's written if the thou, meaning me, or you, the one bringing the gift to the altar is the one who is angry without a cause and has called somebody a name, or we have done something that has maybe provoked somebody to be angry with us without a cause. It's not clear which way we should take this. But as I look at it, I think we need to also understand that in our lives, we must be careful not to arouse other people's anger against us. Unjustified anger. So like I said, there's two ways that this could be seen. The, the brother has ought against us because we're angry with them. We've called them names. Or the other brother is angry with us, and it's an unjustified anger. But we've done, maybe we've done something to arouse that anger that was perceived wrongly because the anger is called unjustified here. You know what? It doesn't matter how we take it because either way, there's a problem in the relationship. Does it matter which side the problem is on? It needs to be taken care of. And sin causes a break in our fellowship with God. And under the Old Testament, the sacrifices were necessary to restore that relationship. It's talking about bringing your gift to the altar. It was a very important aspect of the religion of the people in Christ's day. And so we must seek to remove the anger through reconciliation before we worship. Before we worship. We also need to remember this truth, that God knows our hearts. He knows what's there, and we can't hide this from him. Now, we can be angry with somebody without a cause, maybe not getting to the point where, where we're gossiping or calling them names, but God looks on the heart. And we may be able to hide it from other people, but we can't hide it from God. So Jesus says any unresolved conflict needs to be taken care of. Now, again, I reiterate that worship was important to the scribes and the Pharisees and the Jewish people of Christ's day. It was the focus of most of what they did. It was a very high priority. Now, we don't know about what kind of sacrifice is being brought here. It could be a, a sacrifice for sin. 
It could be a thanksgiving or praise type sacrifice. There were those as well. For our understanding, all we need to know it was, is it was some sort of religious duty. It was a form of worship. We need to understand exactly the truth of Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Or 1 Samuel 15, 22, so Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the, sac than the fat of rams. To offer a sacrifice for sin, which may be done, be what is being done here in verse 23, to offer a sacrifice for sin while still cherishing it in our hearts does absolutely no good. For us to confess our sins to God and not make right what we are confessing means, folks, that the sin is not forgiven. We've not forsaken it. We've not repented of it. Giving a sacrifice for sin does not excuse the necessity of making restitution or seeking reconciliation. Confessing sin for us does not excuse either one as well. We cannot ask for forgiveness without repenting. And repenting involves making the relationship right. That means forsaking the sin, and that involves the reconciliation that Jesus is talking about here Verses 23 and 24. God has said the same before. This has always been his requirement. Take a look, if you would, at Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 11. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11. Speaking to the Jewish people of his day, Isaiah said, God said this through Isaiah to the people, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. And drop down to verses 16 and 17. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek justice. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. What is God saying? Make these things right before you come and offer these sacrifices to me. <clears throat> Look at Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah 58, verses 5 through 7. Isaiah 58. Verses 5 through 7. Is it such a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? And then he says this, is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor, that thou art, uh, 
that are cast out of thy house, when thou seest the naked, that thou, co thou coverest him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh. In other words, take care of these things, and then do the prescribed fast. And then Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. Jeremiah chapter 7, 9 and 10. Will ye steal, murder, commit adultery, and swear falsely, and burn incense unto Baal, and walk after other gods whom you know not, and come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to all these abominations. So God has said numerous times, they would much rather that we are living according to the law than in an external way offer all these sacrifices, which to God mean nothing if the heart is not So we should be careful, and there are a lot of people who would take this route as well, and that is attempting to do good, to kind of balance out the evil in our lives. Some people try to do that, thinking that the doing of the good will make up for the evil. Or, and we've been over this, I know, a number of times, but people saying, well, you know what, I don't need to do anything in the relationship because I've forgiven them in my heart. No. Notice what Jesus said. If you remember, if your brother has anything against you, leave the gift there before the altar, and what's it say? Forgive him in your heart. Go thy way, first be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Go thy way. Leave your gift and go do something about it. Any act of worship for us today, from attendance at church, being in a worship service, to prayer, to Bible study, giving, especially the Lord's table, any act of worship today, we need to realize that Jesus said the priority is first be reconciled to your brother, then come and do these things. That's hard, isn't it? difficult. But it's more important to God that we reconcile with those who are angry with us or those we are angry with than that we come to worship him. Do you see the priority that God is setting up? Here is a person who is coming maybe to offer a, a lamb for forgiveness of sins. He's bringing that lamb to the altar and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit smites his heart and he says, you're not right with this person. You're angry with this person without a cause, or they're angry with you without a cause. And that's being brought to your mind. And Jesus is saying, don't put that lamb on the altar. Leave the lamb there by the altar and go take care of the problem. That is the priority that God sets upon being right with your fellow man. It is more important to be clear of all offense with other people. Now, we're not talking about minor sins here. We all sin. 
We may have been even sinned on our way in the car here to worship. We're talking about relationships that have been severed that need to be made right. In a sentence is this, we must be right with others before we can be right with God. It seems like a simple truth. And so the priority is that leave your gift. Do it at once. Leave the gift there. Don't worry about what anybody else is saying. Can you imagine the priests? The guy's about to offer the lamb on the altar, and he, all of a sudden he remembers. He's not right with John down the road. And he leaves his lamb there, and the priest says, well, where are you going? Well, I've got to take care of this. So God is setting up a priority here. There is something else that is more urgent that takes a higher priority than even the worship of God himself. This shows the importance that God places upon reconciliation. Any act of worship is useless, worthless, if there is unconfessed sin or failure on our part to get rid of that anger towards another or take care of the problem in the relationship. We need to be right with others. And so there's a priority here. It is vital, absolutely vital, that there be reconciliation. Notice first, leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First, be reconciled to thy brother. That's the priority. Take care of that first before anything else, including worship. And I think the act of worship is used here as an example to show the importance that God places upon being reconciled with those around us. Nor should we take this attitude. Well, I'll offer my lamb on the altar. I'll go to church and I'll pray and I'll give my gift into the offering plate. or I'll even go through the Lord's Supper. And I promise to take care of this situation when I get home. What's the problem with that? Will we take care of it? Probably not. Probably not. Jesus is saying, don't wait till later. Take care of it now. And then, of course, I want to key in on the word brother. The brother has something against you. And this word brother is used in the broadest sense. Here it would mean any fellow Jewish person, not just those who are part of our church not just brothers and sisters in Christ, but your co-worker, your neighbor, your relative, your friend down the street. We like to keep it, you know, I'm okay with everybody in this church. Now, folks, a lot of times that's pretty easy to do. It's the neighbor sometimes that we have issues with or another family member. So the word brother is used in its broadest sense here. It means anybody that's holding a grudge against you due to your anger or you're calling them names or maybe something that they perceive that you did that causes their unjustified anger. And then the word ought says if, he, if thy brother hath anything, or ought against thee, it's a KJV word, means anything. It's left general. It covers all sorts of different cases. Anything. 
And, you know, I can't even preach on that because there's so many things that cause rifts within relationships. It's anything. We're not talking about little minute things here, but grievances of such a nature that they cause anger and they sever relationships. The kind of people that you're having a problem with, that if you see them on the street, things start bubbling up inside of you. And you know what I'm talking about. Or you see that person at church and you turn the other way. You don't want to, you know, one of the things I always liked about church is that we ought to get back to it once COVID gets done, but, you know, shaking hands, the right hand of fellowship with people in the church. It's interesting to stand back and watch week after week, and there might be some people who they never shake each other's hands. They avoid each other. We're talking about a severance in the relationship is such that people aren't on talking terms. There's usually some sort of injustice that caused the anger on both sides. The illustration seems to include both the innocent and the guilty one here. But the focus seems to be that the one who is doing the remembering is probably not the innocent one here. And we can't say that with 100% certainty, but it doesn't matter. If you're there offering your gift and you remember so-and-so and there's an issue, it's time to go take care of it. It is interesting here that we are the ones who are responsible to remember if our brother has anything against us. It is our responsibility to go to them. Now, this will be evident in the relationship, of course. Go thy way. Go to the one where there's a problem with. Go to the one that you've wronged and be reconciled to your brother. Correct, if possible, whatever the injustice was. So the offender is to put things right with the one he has offended. Now, you got to ask yourself this question, as at least I do, when you read this passage of Scripture. Why does God put such a priority on reconciliation even before worship of him? Why does he put such a priority upon that? I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Philippians 1.27. <clears throat> Philippians 1.27. Philippians 1.27 states, Only let your conduct, your manner of life, be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. I want to key in on the first part of that verse. The word only is giving prominence to this advice. And it places it by itself in this section in Philippians. This is the one thing that really matters, is what Paul is saying. And the word conduct there is a word that means to be a citizen, or how one behaves as a citizen, or conducting yourself as a citizen. So here we are, citizens of the kingdom of God, and especially, we are to conduct ourselves in a certain way because we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. So our manner of life, our conduct, 
is supposed to match up with the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. We are to act and live a certain way as a citizen, as an orderly member of that society, the kingdom of God. And the word conduct means life in our public aspect. I'm talking about private life here. We're talking about life in our public aspect. Only let your conduct, notice that word be. Your manner of life, your conduct, make it a reality. Bring your conduct in to conformity with what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. And notice that word becometh. I like that word becometh. I think the ESV might use the word worthy. Okay, I still like the KJV word becometh, especially when you understand what it means. Let your life accurately represent, be worthy of representing the gospel, be suitable to representing the gospel. Let your life be in a manner worthy of the gospel. Titus 2.10 says, not purlaining, but showing all good fidelity, that you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. It uses the word adorn, to decorate. Our lives need to decorate properly the gospel. That's what Paul is saying. We need to make the gospel look good and attractive to others by our lives. We need to show the benefits of the gospel. We should be showing people we're not ashamed of the gospel. And the word becometh here in verse 27 of Philippians chapter 1 has the same idea. The English word, English used, used the word become. Those clothes are becoming to her. What did that mean? Those clothes, the color, the cut, the style, they enhance her face, her shape, her personality. In other words, the clothes make the person look good. And Paul is saying that our lives need to be lived in such a way as to make the gospel attractive, to look good to other people. Our lives need to be lived in agreement with the gospel, in harmony with the gospel, guided by the gospel. So individually and corporately, in all of our relationships, in our church life, our individual lives, need to be brought into harmony with the spirit and the precepts of the gospel. So if that's what this verse is teaching, as well as Titus chapter 2 and verse 10, what does it mean? And the first question we need to ask ourselves is this. What is the gospel about that we need to be portraying with our lives? The gospel is about reconciliation. And Jesus is placing such a high priority on reconciliation because when we take that extra step when we leave our gift at the altar and we've remembered that somebody has something against us or we've got something against them and we go to reconcile with them, we are portraying the gospel 
of God reconciling man to himself. Our lives need to agree with the gospel. And there's no more disheartening thing to a pastor than to visit somebody in the community and they say, I'll never attend that church. And they give a list of reasons why they'll never attend that church. And you realize that the list of reasons are there because people aren't living up to these verses of letting their lives fall into conformity to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, these people hate each other. They're constantly fighting among themselves. They can't even agree on what color of carpet to put in the auditorium. They've kicked people out of the congregation. And people in the community where a local church exists, they know more of what's going on in the church than sometimes the people in that church themselves. And I began to pastor a church down in Lewistown, Illinois, and that church had lost its testimony with the people of the community. Once a church has lost its testimony with the people of the community, it's very, very hard to get back. And I heard things that showed me that the people of the past weren't properly representing the gospel with their lives. Can I just leave it at that? And such a high priority is placed upon reconciliation by Christ because the gospel is about reconciliation. And when we take it upon ourselves to lay aside pride, to lay aside even our own rights, and we go to be reconciled to somebody else, that they've wronged us or we've wronged them, we are representing what the gospel represents. And that problem in the relationship, can I kind of explain it? i got more to do here, but can I kind of explain it like this? I'm going to pick on Larry. He's right up here on my right, very close. Let's say Larry and I have a problem. And it's such a problem that I have unjustified anger towards Larry. Either he did something, I perceived he did something, I... Maybe I even heard he said something about me, which he never said, but you know how gossip and tail-bearing works. And I'm holding on to this basketball, this thing that Larry did against me. And it's causing me to be unjustifiably angry with him, such that I can't even look him in the eye. I'm looking you in the eye, Larry, because there's no problem with us. But I can't even look at him. I can't talk to him. In fact, maybe in my private conversations or even to his face, I call him a name. I've broken the sixth commandment. Now, Larry might not even know I'm holding on to this basketball. He's not aware of it. He doesn't know it's there. He might perceive that there's something wrong because I'm not talking to him like I used to. But I've got this thing that I'm holding on to. I'm calling it a basketball to represent whatever that thing may be. 
My Bible is telling me I have this thing that I think Larry did. And I'm going to go to worship God, and I'm going to participate in the Lord's Supper, and all of a sudden the Lord brings that to my mind. My Bible is saying, forget the worship. Forget the Lord's table. Take this thing that Larry has supposedly done against me and bring it to him and say, Larry, here. Take it. This is what you did. And Larry looks at it and he says, I didn't do that. Right? You didn't do it. But now we've got this thing that's between us that we're talking about. Whatever it might be. And we talk about it. And we reconcile. And now I can go back and worship. But you know what? He didn't know that thing was there. Maybe he did. Maybe there is some genuine offense. But when I bring that thing to him, that basketball, and we talk about it, and we confess our sin, in this case, my sin, Larry didn't do anything. Don't walk out of here thinking Larry did anything. He didn't do anything. And we talk about this thing. And we remove this thing that's hurting our relationship, and we cast it aside through confession of sin, through making it right, clearing things up, the relationship has been restored. That's the gospel. Because there's something between God and man that needs to be taken care of. And it's something that I hold. God doesn't hold it. I hold it. It's called sin. And God points to that sin through the use of the law, through preachers, through the preaching of the gospel, and he points to that sin. He says, you need to take care of that. And the only way I can take care of it is by coming to Jesus Christ who died for that sin. And he's the mediator between God and man. And I say, yes, God, this is sin. I did it. I'm responsible for it. I broke the law. I'm guilty, condemned, and worthy to go to hell because of this sin. But when I turn to Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for that sin, and he takes it out of the way, it's called remission, he takes it out of the way. And I can have a restored relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ because the sin, the problem between God and me has been taken out of the way. That's the gospel. I was once an enemy of God, but through Christ, I am now his, I hate to say it this way, but I'm his brother because he's not ashamed to call us brethren. I'm a son of God. The day you came to Christ, was that not a day filled with joy? And the day you make things right with another person Will that not be a day filled with joy? So get to it. Take care of it before you worship. Because Christ puts a priority on that. Father, thank you for your word. And I would pray that each and every one of us would take this to heart. Realize what the gospel is all about and how we can 
show the gospel attractive to others by being reconciled to those who have an issue with us or we have an issue with them. I pray that you give us the grace, ability, and strength to do that. In Jesus' name I pray.